To mark World Mental Health Day, Irish Men Abroad Podcasts is proud to present this very special bonus episode in association with our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw.ie. Now, if you don't know who Jigsaw.ie are, well, I'll explain right now. They're a youth mental health charity back home in Ireland who work to provide young people across all communities with the mental health skills they'll need to prosper in life. And skills is such an important word there for me, because when we think about mental health and we talk about these things, uh, skill and uh, methods and these things that we learn to cope are just that. They are skills. They're language, words, approaches, devices and methods that we can apply to our lives to make them more livable. We all have a mental health just as you have a physical health and with Jigsaw they address how a young person attempting to move through this very difficult world can equip themselves with those devices those methods those approaches those that language that will ultimately make life a little bit easier and let's face it young people in Ireland need our support to get through these coming months. Continued uncertainty is contributing to a growing sense of hopelessness and fear for the future in all of us. If you're a young person, it's worse. This World Mental Health Day, please take the time to make a donation to Jigsaw so that they can support young people when they need it most. Please donate today at jigsaw.ie forward slash donate. Now, I was reluctant to do this very special episode because this is a more personal episode than usual. I speak to Jen Trecek, who is the e-mental health clinical manager there at Jigsaw, and she's an amazing person, and you can tell straight away why they're so good at what they do. Jen's incredible in this conversation with me. They suggested that maybe I talk about what I've been through, what I'm doing, how I approach this and the challenges I faced in coming to a point in my life where I could open up, I could go and find the right therapist and the challenges of being a parent in all of this. My side of dealing with young people and my one-to-one experience with Mikey, my son, younger people and their mental health finding its roots in their youth. That's what this is about. My conversation with Jen Trechik is the beginning of this episode. And in the second half, we'll have a collection of contributions from some of the most impactful conversations on mental health that I've had across the 400 plus episodes of An Irishman Abroad. They'll include Jason McAteer, the former Ireland international and Liverpool footballer, Bob Geldof, of course, Caroline Forn and Richie Sadlier. And not to mention Blind Boy. It's my pleasure and with great pride that I present this episode to you as a bonus episode available across all our platforms. And if any of this resonates with you, maybe you should listen to more. There's tons and tons of Irishmen Abroad episodes available and communication and conversation is at the centre of mental health and it's the core of what I've been doing for the last seven years here. The through line of mental health through it and opening up myself has contributed massively to my mental well-being and coming to terms with 
things that are difficult in life. So I hope you enjoy this. It's my contribution to World Mental Health Day on behalf of Irish Men Abroad podcast and our chosen charity partner Jigsaw.ie. As I said, click on Jigsaw.ie forward slash donate today and give what you can to support young people when they need it most. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Jen Trechick from Jigsaw.ie. It is a pleasure to have you on Irishman Abroad, even though I don't feel like you're the guest today, because <laughs> our understanding is that I'm going to talk here and open up a little bit about the reason why Jigsaw.ie are our chosen charity partner, why your work's important to me as somebody who realises now I struggled with my mental health in my younger years and abundantly conscious, like a lot of our listeners, of its significance and importance now to thriving in life. And also as a father to a son who Let's face it, if you have a kid right now, the chances are the struggles they are having uh, with all of this unique circumstance we find ourselves in won't be visible on the surface in an awful lot of cases. So I'm delighted to have you on. And I guess maybe the first question that I'd have for you is, what well, what does your day to day look like at Jigsaw? <laughs> Hi, Charles. Well, first of all, thanks so much for putting the spotlight on Jigsaw. We really appreciate it. And being able to talk about mental health and youth mental health is so important. So really appreciate that. My day to day at Jigsaw has changed over the past few years. So I'm a, a clinical manager and I'm an occupational therapist by background. And my start of my career in Jigsaw was supporting young people in the Clondalk and Tala area who were struggling with their mental health and offering support, uh, short term support to them to help young people to find different ways to manage their mental health. That's changed. I'm now the um, I work on Jigsaw online. So some of our support is now being offered via different means as we evolve and change. So the pandemic has has really changed a little bit of our day to day. We're offering support in different ways via video, via text for young people and continuing face to face. So that's um, what what I do in Jigsaw. Well, let me ask you this then, because, you know, our understanding here was that, you know, we we turn the tables a little bit. I'm <laughs> yes. not entirely comfortable with being interviewed uh, as most people aren't <laughs> yeah but equally I didn't want this to be a session 
stand, yeah. Yeah, because that is a sacred space. And yeah. I, I definitely didn't want this to be performative in any way because I just think that everybody's on their own journey and that you, you can't be kind of waving your finger or even describing to people how it should be done. Uh, yes. to, to an extent, I just want us to, to talk, I guess, about yeah. this and... Maybe let you ask the questions. I think that's great because I think what you've hit on there is it is really difficult sometimes to talk about ourselves and our own mental health. And I think as Irish people, we're, we're good at having the chats, but maybe becoming that little bit more reflective can be difficult. It can touch on difficult areas. And I think for a lot of young people coming to Jigsaw, that can feel like a challenge. Being able to ask for help when we need it or being able to talk about their own mental health can feel uncomfortable and can put people off for quite a long time before they begin to open up and, and, and get some support. So I suppose um, for you, you kind of mentioned it's a little bit uncomfortable. What, what does it feel like now kind of just talking about your own mental health rather than asking somebody else about it? Well, I guess when I'm talking to people in interviews about it, I would usually take the approach of, if they've spoken about it before, then mm-hmm. it's it's not open season, but rather yeah. it's it's something they're comfortable that they're comfortable with. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I'm also really conscious that when I'm interviewing people that I don't veer into attempting to psychoanalyze them mm-hmm. or going down a path of making judgments on them and their behavior. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that kind of territory and that kind of way of approaching sure. things is it's kind of gross uh, yeah. because if the person wanted to talk about it, they would. Now, I have never really opened up about my mental health before, but in that way, I thought that I have nothing to be ashamed of. And mm-hmm. there's there is still shame. There is mm-hmm. still shame, whether we want to admit it or not. There's there's still a lingering or maybe a certain quarter of our culture uh, as men, as Irish men and as snowflakes. Mm-hmm. There's this. I often feel my reluctance to talk about it is in depth is that harkens back to your days of the the schoolyard yeah. like oh here he goes you know toughen the fuck up you know the pull whole, your socks up mate yeah. yeah you know Ireland had a, several methods of dealing with mental illness in the past and one of them was snap out of it <laughs> yeah absolutely, absolutely. Well, catch yourself and on that was another one uh-huh. <laughs> It's, it's, cop on, you're grand. Yeah, cop there's on. People, there's people with it worse off than you. Yeah, pour <laughs> yourself a cup of cap on. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, sure. Uh, there's people worse off than you. Mm. And I do think that there's value in that. And I do think mm. there's value in in saying no matter how hard you have it, someone has it worse. Mm. But that doesn't diminish what you've been through or are going through absolutely i think that's really important you know the idea of comparing is really unhelpful because different circumstances and as you said everybody has their own journey that they take and and it's unique and it's it's different and i hear that it is difficult talking about mental health and yet for you it's some, there's something very important about it you know it comes up in in a number of different ways throughout your podcasts so although it's challenging it is a real 
passion um, and, mm. and, and important for you. Yeah. And look, uh, I'm in the business of mining your own human experience for performance and for my art or craft, whatever you want to call stand up. A lot of the best stand up of the last 20 years of the last 30 years are people f opening up their heart and uh, revealing to people the most intimate parts of themselves. And in that way, other people don't feel as alone. And the honesty, I mean, people have a radar for sincerity. And I've probably opened up more in the last few years on stage than I have in the past. But again, there's also reluctance there. And I think that this needs to be addressed before we go anywhere else. There's always a reluctance there to present your dirty laundry or your family business. And I've always had that fear of bringing shame onto the family. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I know you don't laugh when yeah. I say those things, but they are legit <laughs> concerns. And they're often why so many comics perform jokes about cats and dogs. <laughs> and, it's easier uh, and safer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and equally, there can be an element of enough about me uh, we all need to be distracted from the world that is very serious yeah. with silliness. So, yeah, there, there's that side to it as well. But like you say, it is very important to me. And, and you mentioned earlier that idea of judgment or shame and, and that kind of pe people are listening and, and hearing what, what you're saying and, and making their own judgments, which is, I can't imagine <laughs> airing everything on a stage in front of a lot of people. That must be so daunting. Probably quite different to people who are maybe coming into um, a therapeutic space who that is a very private, as you said, and confidential space. Do, do you think that that can be easier for people to open up or are the challenges similar? I can only really speak about my own experience, right? And when I started going to see somebody, I knew I could benefit. I just knew. But it's amazing the things that came up in terms of my privacy and that it took a long time to get over the idea that maybe this person was recording what I was saying. And I, I'd imagine that this is something that young people would deal with too, that because of the all-seeing eye nature of social media, you can never be fully guaranteed that okay. this this is going to be leaked. And if we are going to be 100% honest in that setting, it took me a long time to earn or learn to trust that person uh -huh. yeah. and also to get over the I, I think it may be a Catholic thing that uh -huh. I felt like I was betraying others by talking so uh -huh. openly with a stranger. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's that I, I'd imagine. And the only reason I come on here and say this is because when I meet people who are reluctant to do the same thing, to go and talk to somebody, they relate similar hesitancy. Yeah. yeah. 
I absolutely. I think often people wait until things are really bad and they've reached their limits before they go and talk to somebody. And it kind of takes something to push them over the edge sometimes. But as you said, the, the benefit of, of going and, and being able to get things off your chest and just talk about things to somebody who isn't judgmental and who is going to keep it confidential and, and, and private and support you to find a way to, to manage some of those thoughts and feelings. Um, I don't think you can underestimate that. Mm, yeah. And, you know, uh, Jen, the the reality is I didn't find the right person right away. And I remember it was, it was I can't remember whether it was Blind Boy or someone else who said this to me that you, you need to shop around for the person. Right. And that was a game changer for me because I was like, oh, I thought you just had to take the one you found given. in the phone book. <laughs> yeah. But I can remember yeah. the first guy going to him and explaining my scenario and a few situations from my life. And he just agreed with me the whole time. And I, I just, he didn't have, I, I was like, I need, I need more than that. You know? You're looking for some kind of challenge or some way of understanding I it. I don't know, but I definitely wasn't hmm. comfortable with mm-hmm. just somebody going, sure, isn't that terrible? Because uh, I was walking out going, yeah, get that from your mouth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know it's terrible. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I did just make the decision after giving him three dates <laughs> uh, to go. It's it's not right. And That's that took right. courage, too. And, you know, I really uh, I that's the other thing that I always say to, to people who are like, Oh, I could never do that. I think you could. I think you could if you knew I can that they are uh, they are abundantly aware that they not may not be the right person for you either. Yeah. It's it, there's so many different types of therapeutic approach and it is absolutely finding the right one for you. And you know, in, in jigsaw, you know, we, we're not a counseling service as such, so it's not people coming and, and just talking about problems. The approach that we take, which doesn't suit everybody, but is very much a solution-focused approach, and it's very much looking at the strengths that people have to to deal with the situations that they're faced with, and supporting people to kind of recognise those strengths and and find ways to manage the situations. So, um, it is about finding that the right thing for you, and and for some people, just coming and talking is is what they need. Um, talking to somebody who can just listen, and then some people need a little bit more support to find new ways to deal with things or new skills to deal with things. So it's great that you're able to kind of shop around and, and find the, the right thing. Well, let me ask you this, Jen, because, y- you know, the number one reason why I thought this would be a good idea was in terms of my own son and my family life and how I know countless parents who are now facing into, who knows, right now it looks like there could potentially be another full lockdown through some winter months and you know that like I always say on the podcast we all remember how hard it was to be a kid it's a multiple of 400 times harder if you ask me now what do you do when a parent comes to you and says I assume my kid needs support I'm he on the surface seems fine what to what do you do there yeah yeah i mean support for parents is so key and i would say parents know their young people and their children the best and if they have a sense that something isn't right it's important to trust their gut um 
I think communication is so key. And you mentioned, you know, as parents, we have such a role to play in role modeling for our kids. So role modeling how we mind our own mental health. Um, if we're feeling stressed and anxious and worried, it's more difficult for us to, to be there to support young people as well. So we'd often say to parents, look after your own oxygen mask first. And, and for a lot of parents, that's a challenge because it can feel selfish. I don't have time to look after myself. I have to look after the kids and the partner and, and the job and everything else. And I don't have time to focus on me. So we, we'd say, actually, it's really important when you're feeling like that, that you do focus on you because you can't be there for everybody else unless you, you have the strength within yourself to do that. So that would be one really important thing to say. Um, and then in terms of talking to young people, Parents are often in, in, in a really good place to be able to have that conversation and, and just to, to open the gateway to talk to young people. Um, and I think sometimes we can be a bit fra- afraid of doing that. We're a bit afraid to ask the questions, you know, how are you doing? Um, how, how is this affecting you? Or, you know, even saying that this is affecting me like this. Have you found that? Um, you know, being, being open with about ourselves is, is OK with young people. Yeah. Um, um, let me ask you this then, and I know that I'm doing what I, what I <laughs> what said, said was. What you said you would do. Said, <laughs> I'm going to turn the tables oh, but, back. <laughs> but I, I'm t- uh, look, I'm, I, I have so many questions for you, and I think that a load of Irishman abroad is just built on curiosity, and you know we've talked about you know my side of this, your side of this is meeting all sorts like. All sorts. And, uh, you know, in terms of my own reluctance and in terms of people's reluctance to engage with Jigsaw, there must be a certain amount of people who think, oh, well, they'll never have seen anything. They wouldn't know what to do with this. Do you meet that a lot? Absolutely. I think because everybody's situation is unique, they often feel nobody has ever experienced this. Nobody will be able to help me. Um, And I would say, pretty much everything we we have heard it before and that's not to minimize it but it's to say you're not on your own whatever it is you're experiencing there is a way to support you and, and, and to deal with it but absolutely that sense and I think it comes from maybe people not talking to each other about what's going on for them you know that that reluctance we talked about earlier of of acknowledging that maybe we're struggling a little bit and so we'd often say to young people we go into schools and we 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 talk to classes and we say it's okay to talk about your mental health and to acknowledge and in the same way you know we 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 don't have a problem talking about our teeth and saying you know I've got a difficulty with a, a pain in my teeth and I'm going to the dentist we shouldn't feel afraid to talk about our mental health and say you know I'm struggling a little bit at the moment and I'm going to do something about it that's okay what we find often with young people is when they start coming to us they become a little bit more comfortable and they find the language to be able to talk about their mental health and that's really important to have the right language to understand your experience and then when they do open up to friends often in a very tentative way and in a very kind of careful way which is the right thing often they'll find other people will say I've I've had that too (laughs) I've experienced that too and it's nearly kind of a snowball effect Everybody kind of acknowledges, yeah, this is a little bit tough. And then we have that kind of shared experience that allows people to feel kind of more comfortable in, in their own experience. So really important to, to have those conversations that can be quite difficult. Mm. Well, uh, like, again, I'm I'm very fortunate, right, in that. And a lot of parents will feel this, right, that I have a good working, <laughs> good working relationship with my son. I mean, I have, uh, 
uh, uh, we communicate. Yes, uh, he understands his role in the company. <laughs> he, he and I are pretty open with each other and mm-hmm. have been, you know, to the point of it being jar you shouldn't tell him about that (laughs) Um, there but that does bring up a point right like i trace some of my biggest anxieties to discussions that i overheard as a child whether it was in relation to the family finance the chance of a Uh break-in and the future Right. So this impending doom. (sighs) These kids are overhearing some crazy shit. Absolutely. And that's that came through a lot for us during the pandemic. We had young people who were really stressed and there's there is a lot of unemployment. There's a lot of uncertainty about the future. There's fears around sickness, bereavement, all of those kinds of fears. And we did have a lot of young people speaking to us saying, I'm stressed about these things, but I don't feel I can speak to my parents because I don't want them to stress out even more. I don't I don't want to add to the stresses that they're feeling, which kind of balloons things. And I suppose with anxiety, a lot of it comes from the fear of the unknown or feeling that we have no control or feeling that we won't be able to manage. So I wonder in hearing those conversations when you were younger, there wasn't maybe a, a, a resolution or maybe there wasn't a sense that this is something that we can deal with. With a lot of anxieties, it's helpful to kind of pull them out in the open and say, this is what I'm worried about. And we can't, you know, not to minimise that because we don't know what the future holds. It is uncertain and, and there is potentially things will get very hard. But then we need to look at, well, how can we deal with that? So what are the strengths that we have, either as an individual or as a family? What, what are the things that we know about ourselves that we can use to help to cope with whatever happens? Rather than, you know, a little bit of reassurance is good. You know, we, we do all want to feel reassured. But with, with, with some of the things that we're facing at the moment, there is no reassurance to be had. We don't know the answers. So it's OK to acknowledge that, but to then kind of bring it back down to, but what are we going to do? And for all of us ourselves, we you know, I don't know whether you found with with the pandemic that kind of rising anxiety or or uncertainty that the impact that that can have on on your day to day and how how having to think then about how do you manage those kind of rising feelings of of stress or anxiety? Yeah, uh, like I uh, I mean there is a tendency to like even just the other day uh, there was a conversation in the house about what's going to happen next and. I saw him, uh, you know, continuing to draw his picture and then kind of go to say something about the future. And I just put my hand on his hand and said, it's all going to be fine. Like, (laughs) it is all going to be fine. But, you know, Jen, I don't know that. I don't I don't actually know that. Like, you know, there's there's two sides to this thing from you know, parents who are looking for guidance as to what to tell their kid when they themselves, as you say, are struggling to get the gas mask on in their own right. That's exceptionally hard, right? That's that's exceptionally hard to reassure someone when you're not feeling reassured yourself. It's really tough. It's really tough. And what's even harder is trying to mask that. So it's not to say that we have to hide that, but it's it's kind of putting a box around it so saying you know we we're all anxious it's it's understandable to be anxious or worried that makes sense because it's a it's a difficult time for all of us but 
I don't know what the future holds, but I do know that I'll be here for you in the future. I do know that we'll continue to talk, that we'll get through it together in the best way that we can. Um, and, and focusing on, 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 you know, what are the strengths? What, what, what do we know? Um, and we, we don't necessarily know what will happen or won't happen, but we do know that we can be there for each other. And that's really, really important just to just to say trying to contain, uh, you know, acknowledging the anxiety and then trying to contain it. And uh, without a doubt, Charlotte, it is challenging. It is it is really hard to do. Um, so I do think it is important then to take some time for yourself and think about wh- what, what am I telling myself? How am I coping with the anxiety? What are my fears? How am I dealing with those? And we all deal with them differently. You know, sometimes we just want to push things away and ignore them and, and pretend that this isn't happening. Sometimes we focus on it too much and, and we spend a lot of time kind of going over and over it in our minds. And, and you know, it's finding a way for, for yourself to, to manage and, and to bring it back down to, well, what, what is within my control? What are the things that I can do? What can I focus on? What can I manage? So that can sometimes take a little bit of time mm. for, for ourselves and then deciding then where to put our energies, where to put our focus. I don't know if I said this to you in the pre-chat, but certainly I felt at the start of all of this when on March 14th I did my last stand-up show that it reminded me of my own personal pandemic when I left Ireland and started Irishman Abroad and how much self-reliance was the key to that. So I don't know if I've struggled as badly as others with it because I definitely had my back to the wall at another point in my life. And that's a really vivid memory for me. And I I know how I got out of that. I know how I rose. What it took. Yeah. And yeah. yeah uh, so you know, there's there's just there's, there's another thing I, I thought we should just talk about briefly, because obviously Tina gets a huge shout out every show here. And she's such a huge part of my life. And as many of the listeners will know, she is immunocompromised and in the vulnerable category. And she is uh, Tina, the Celtic warrior to me. (laughs) uh, She just has a a relentless toughness. But at at the other side of that, I think I take on an awful lot of anxiety on her behalf in that, you know, the way when you're driving the car, you're not as scared (laughs) as when you're in the passenger seat. Yeah. and obviously that that's a two way street. I'd imagine that mm-hmm. she feels that when I'm up in the office here attempting yeah. to write jokes that are going to put bread on the table. So like that's a, that's a side of things for me that, you it's know, that ad- additional kind of concern and an area that you feel maybe you don't have control over. Yeah, well, look, comics are uniquely controlling people. I mean, if you look at the <laughs> decision and the choice of of life. It is about working alone and being in charge of your own hours and being in mm-hmm. charge of when people laugh at you. The times that I've gone for help and at various points during lockdown, I've been like, i got to check back in with uh, my person. A lot of the time it was just to kind of air out the worst case scenarios. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> You know, if there's anyone listening to this who feels like, oh, well, I can't say it to him or her. I can't even say it in earshot of the kids because that will, you know, put that frequency into the atmosphere. I mean, for me, that that's the number one reason 
get this into your life and get moving in this direction because the actual <laughs> articulation sometimes I felt that once I said it out loud the power was gone from the yeah. thing the football is empty then absolutely it's sometimes a bit like um when you're sitting in the dark and you hear a noise and you think it's the worst thing ever and your mind jumps to the horrific scenario of a huge monster in the corner or whatever it is and when you turn the light on and you look and it's actually something really small a tiny spider and it's manageable but it, it's turning the light on to recognize what the fear is is really important and it's often less scary than we think it is so you're right if you can't say it to somebody close to you and there might be loads of different reasons that you can't finding somebody else who who is able to just just to talk it through with you and, and to shine a light on it is really really helpful well this has been massively helpful to me jen and i know that it's brief and that's why i think that like we should maybe do this at regular intervals through the next year because like I could even, you know, cast the net out to the listeners who have questions for you relating to Jigsaw and youth mental health that we obviously aren't going to get to today. Uh, it's an evolving situation for all of our families and all of our young people. So, Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. And until next time, until uh, next time. I will talk to you very soon. Thank you, Charlotte. And thank you for your honesty and your openness, because I know it's not always easy and you're you're not playing for laughs here. So I, I understand that that's probably uncomfortable, but I think massively helpful for people to know that it's OK to do that. Um, so really appreciate you being being open um, to, to this collaboration and for all the work that you do with Jigsaw. And um, I know you keep plugging us, but if anybody wants more information about the types of support that we offer, um, jigsaw.ie is the, the place to go. And we've got support for young people directly we've got information for parents we've got information for teachers um, and any anyone who works with young people so if anybody is is interested in our work then jigsaw.ie is where to find us Jen Trechek from jigsaw.ie thank you so much uh, I look forward to this being a regular feature maybe once a month we'll do it once every two months but it will be great if uh, you have the time I know you're super busy over there let's do it again soon that's great. Thanks, Charlotte. So the next voice you're going to hear is Bob Geldof. And he talked to me a long time ago, Not, I think it was a couple of hundred episodes ago, about grief and how he let the light back in after the passing of his daughter. You are an ambassador for an awful lot of things, but I find it interesting that now at this point in your life, you're sincerely, for a lot of people, an ambassador of survival yourself and surviving terrible things and awful experiences and coming out the other side uh, in one piece and ready to live another day. How do you do that? And what is the advice to people going through terrible things right now that they feel at times I can't? Well, large chunks of you are left behind. It's like being savaged by a shark, isn't it? I mean, um, but you, with any luck, you escape. You you get out and you live to fight another day. There are periods where you have to measure whether you can go on, whether it's worth continuing. 
And in my case, it was a simple calculus. Down one page was all the reasons not to, and on one other page was two words, the kids. And and, and so um, it's no use saying time, uh, time heals. It does not. Time cannot heal. Time accommodates. And um, there isn't a single day goes by where the things you're uh, referring to um, don't come to me. And there's not a day where I don't wrestle with them, where I don't think, what happened? Could that have been different? And um, there's not a day where you don't blame yourself for lots of the stuff. Hmm. But what else is there? These events will pass. They will pass. Um, And you will be there at the end of it. And... Maybe they'll break you, but it's 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 not a permanent breaking. Um, poco a poco, you can put back a version of yourself. Um, it isn't the same as before. It's just another iteration. Uh, again, in a terrible analogy, you can play several different versions of the same song. Some are good versions, some aren't. Um, uh, and that's exactly what must happen with your life and you can balance then the awfulness of the events that occur to you or things you've done to yourself with um, the possibility of things that you will do going forward and uh, it probably balances out in the end but you are left desperately wounded and um, you just have to lick that wound on a daily basis. There's no forgetting. Yeah. Uh, I'm lucky that often that can be a spur to articulating it through a sound or a sensibility or a song or something. You don't consciously do it, but an image will throw itself up that you may not understand at the beginning, but subsequently as it plays out on stage, you say, of, co- of course, that's what it's about. But um, it's necessary for you to say it. But here we here we lend it because this is this is the end. A life without love is completely meaningless. That's it. Um, it puts context and perspective, and it's the one element that makes the pedestrian condition of being human transcendent. And um, you know. To live in love, you know, is all there is. And it's love that binds you together, that sticks you together again. That is the band-aid or the elastoplast or whatever. And I got lucky um, when uh, my wife left me and subsequently died. I met a girl who knew nothing about me, um, who I married couple of years ago and I married her after my daughter died because things were so dark in our family that I feared for my children's health and um, never mind mine and it happened to be uh, my wife's 50th birthday and we've been together 20 years and so to let some air into the room to set some let some light into the fog 
uh, I proposed to her and she married me and um, though all the family was ruined uh, she's a wonderful woman and but I didn't marry her because of that I loved her anyway but here was a celebration of life in the face of the other and and that's what you've got to hold on to you know you've got to say that this is better than anything that's coming or out there in my view there is nothing after this and that's a great relief to me um, that there's just nothing that all the time we are something becoming nothing i find that intriguing um, i find it refreshing and interesting that this exhausting thing called life absolutely exhausting is over and it's no more frightening than what you were before you were born nothing so that's what you're going to and that to me is a great relief so while you're here what is the one thing that you know to be the superlative of existence and that's love and that is a sharing of of a life you know yourself that if you're somewhere fantastic by yourself you try and remember it to bring your partner back to because it's not enough to go back and say oh there was this amazing place when you're with someone and you're staring at another evening sunset or you're just sitting there having a drink with someone, it is magnified. That sense of uh, of pleasure is doubled, obviously, but it's magnified. It's somehow appreciated through the other's eyes. And so life life is the same. It, it, it's there to be shared and it's there to be lived in. And as much as possible... Uh, in that transcendent state of love. I sound like a hippie. Believe me, I ain't a hippie. <laughs> but if you want to know what I've learned, life without love is meaningless. The next person you're going to hear in this extended chunk is Marion Keyes, the award-winning and best-selling Irish author. And she touches on a couple of things that Jen spoke about in the first section of the show, uh, about the culpability of mental health issues and how sometimes we can make people feel like they can't suffer from depression or other things if they have a loving family. She also gets into stuff like the benefits of learning about mental health from a really early age. It's one of my favourite discussions about the subject across the 400 episodes of Irishman Abroad. It's Marion Keys. I don't think the culpability part has faded. You know, even now people ask, like, but what happened? Mm. You know, as if, they, you know, that there had to be a reason. And I suppose I feel that it's an illness. I mean, I really don't want a recurrence of it. And I've kind of looked at what, the way my life was before I became so sick and wonder, did I contribute to it? And I can't, I can't really see that I did. You know, I worked hard, but so do many people. So I'm not sure that people are still really comfortable with the idea of it being an illness. Mm. And I'm not sure that people... I think, yeah, I think everybody thinks that there has to be a cause and that if things are... If you're okay financially and if you have, you know, a family who love you, that you couldn't possibly be depressed. But 
it's been said so many times, but like, you know, having a good job and having a loving partner doesn't stop people from getting diabetes or emphysema or MS. It's funny that mental illness is still treated as almost a moral failing and that it's something that people can recover from by themselves if they just want it hard enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think things are changing and especially I love the fact that there's so much um, awareness amongst teenagers and younger children even. You know, I think the more they know about it from an early age, the easier it'll get for everybody. Because, you know, some people are lucky enough and they'll get through life and they'll never really be felled by it. But everybody goes through some sort of sorrow or loss mm. or, you know, and it may not be clinical depression, but people will go through emotional pain that can be catastrophic. Sure. And the mechanics and of it are the same. Very much. And to know that it's not their fault or that or that they're not failing everyone by not making themselves better, it would be a relief for people. So I think the more people that talk about it, the better it will get. And you know, the thing is, like, I am not a bit ashamed or embarrassed or anything talking about it. Like, I wish I hadn't had to live through it. It was it was really not pleasant. But from the position I'm at now where I feel so well, I feel really lucky that I can say to people, listen, if you're going through it, hang on, because you probably will get better, because I didn't think I would. Um, so it's really nice to to have that experience and to not try and pretend it never happened. Sure, and to be an example of someone who who has lived through it and come yes. out the other side. I mean, that yeah. to me, when I hear your your story, is the is the thing that I go back to in my daily life when occasionally I've I've gone to those places, and I yeah. certainly didn't haven't experienced it on the level that others have and that you have. But the really heartening piece that I heard you talk to Kirsty Young about was yeah. the feeling of it coming. In the same way as you might get that taste in your mouth before you get a cold. Yes. You could. Yes. You felt it coming and you yes. also felt it depart. That yes. after a very long period, it, like a cold, it ran its course and yeah. it lifted. What um, was it like it to feel was, it lift? Oh, my God, Charlotte. It was incredible. It was so joyous. Like it happened very suddenly and quickly. It happened the way the descent was, which was also sudden and quick and, and kind of extreme. It was like coming up from, uh, you know, I've described it as coming up from the bottom of the ocean, but coming up and getting closer and closer to the surface and seeing the light and seeing the colour change from black to dark blue to turquoise and, and suddenly being in the light and just to feel, I, I mean, I was back and I knew I was back. And the sense of joy that I felt and that I continue to feel mm. is much more than I used to feel. Really? Um, so it's actually I, better at the other it side? It is better. And I feel 
kind of uncomfortable saying that because I resist all that kind of American stuff of, but what did you learn? Mm. You know, or mm-hmm. a, a, how every bad experience has to be reconfigured into a positive. Because, you know, for some people, you know, a bad thing is simply that, like a horrible experience. But for me, I'm definitely, it broke me in a good way in that, you know, I feel so much love for people and I get so much happiness and I I don't work as hard as I used to because people matter more to me now. Really? Uh, yeah. Like I have, you know, so much love for my family and I had a very small circle of friends, you know, before 2009. And now I have a much wider one. And I'll put myself out for other writers in a way that I was afraid to before because I just didn't have the time. Like it has definitely made me a nicer, a more generous person. Definitely. Can I ask Um, about Tony in in the middle of all this? Because I know that some people who are perhaps experiencing what we're discussing here and are afraid to tell their family about it, are really afraid for the Tonys in their life. Because how is Tony going to live through this? How is he, what's his response going to be? Some people will think, my wife will think I am cracking up Mm. and I don't have any answers as to when this is going to go away. How was Tony through it? And what role did the rock climbing play in all of this? Well, whenever I think of that time, I think of it with such sorrow for him because I didn't know what was happening to me and neither did he. And honest to God, we had been so close. Like we used to say that we shared the same brain. (laughs) And suddenly I was unreachable and I felt like I didn't love him. I felt like I didn't love anyone. And I felt like nobody loved me. And oh, like even even remembering it kind of crushes my Mm -hmm. insights. Like he tried everything. Like I love George Michael, like I always did. And he was doing kind of this world tour with the symphonic orchestra at the time. And he booked me tickets in Florence. And like he took me to Florence to see George Michael. And he did things like that in a desperate attempt to, I don't know, to make me happy. Yeah. And and it just felt worse because it felt the pressure to be better for him mm-hmm. was, it was, it just made it so much worse. But I would say to anyone, you can't not tell your person because they know something is wrong and trying to carry it on your own is just undoable. But to the other people, I would say to them, mind yourself. I would say, you know, you have to put on your own oxygen mask before Mm -hmm. you can help anybody else. Like, he did all these things to try and help me. And in the end, he started doing things to stop himself from cracking also Mm -hmm. because like you know we had been working together we had traveled together like we'd done everything together and I stopped working so I we both stopped traveling and it was like our lives just fell off a cliff and he started running in 
the outdoors, like he used to go down to Wicklow and be in nature. And it was the only thing that helped him. And eventually, you know, he started getting more and more hardcore and started running in snow and ice climbing and rock climbing. And that's his thing now. That's how he stays sane. And I'm just so glad that he found something because because he was as lost as I was. Sure. And, and he was as lonely and frightened as I was. And we couldn't help each other. Like, he couldn't help me and I couldn't help him. And that's the unpleasant, unvarnished truth. So for people who who are going through it, either themselves or a loved one, try and accept that. You know, don't blame your person for not being able to fix you. And if you are the wife or the supportive partner, don't be angry for the with the person for not getting well. You know, don't say, if you love me, you'll get better. Because... It's, I was so powerless over it. Yeah, it's out of your uh, hands. It, yeah, it would be like saying to a person with cancer, if you love me, you'll get better. It's, it's as impossible as that. Mm. And I would say to the people who are supporters to try and also get professional help for themselves. Yeah, people don't talk about that. That's, that's no. really interesting, yeah. But also to keep the faith that if the person stays alive, there's every chance they'll get better that's all i could say that's all anyone needs to do to stay alive for today jason mcateer has in the last few years done incredible work to uh, shine a light on something that is still not that talked about and that is mental health in sports people while in the game and while supposedly living their best life he talks to me here about the breaking point that he reached after his career had ended. I was in this world where I I didn't think anything was was out of place. But, you know, now I've I've looked back and I look at that person and I look at that situation. I I just think, like, how could you spend so much time in the bath? How could you spend so much time in the house behind a closed door, you know, rattling around this house on my own? at the time felt very normal but looking in now I'm thinking wow who was this person what was this world that you were living in it's just I don't relate to it now being sitting here now talking to you but at the time it was very relatable it was what I wanted to do you know the lads would pick they would ring me up or I wouldn't pick the phone up they'd text me listen there's a, there's a night out there's a this would you do this would, would you come here would you? and I would just ignore it I wouldn't you know answer back which were all obviously the, the traits of, of being in a depression. And and like we said before, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. So I went to my mum and, you know, just broke down. But I didn't know. That, that was where I opened up. Mm. And my mum knew there was obviously signs before that. But that's, that was kind of like, it was, it was kind of me breaking down and saying, listen, I need, I need help now. It's like, yeah. not that I thought I needed help I just didn't know what was going on I was just a breaking point with mad thoughts going around you know so she then took me to to see Jane and then we sat down we did what we did what you just mentioned and then you know we, we sat down for two hours I think maybe two and a half hours and then my mum come back and picked me up and then it's, it's obviously then a slow process because you don't wake up the next day and you know everything's okay I went back to see her the next day, it'd be another couple of hours, 
It's probably like that for the first week. And then, you know, she gradually prizes different situations out. She gets to the bottom of things. She, she profiles what you were like, you know, goes right back from when you were a kid, how you grew up, how your parents, you know, their influence, what their aspirations were for you as a, as a kid, which obviously, you know, played its part. Then going through a career, which she didn't really know about, Really, you know what sort of went on. Well, you know, you know, you don't. You know, I'm I'm telling her that this dressing room is like this, and you know, yeah. the crowds like this. You know, she's she's not accustomed to that. You know, her her environment, what she deals with. So then she obviously then writes all that down, and then you know we spoke about certain things and how I needed to maybe process them in a different way. So for the first probably week or ten days, it was quite intense and. You know, nothing happened but me and her, really. It was, you know, I'd go back and then, you know, I'd spend a lot of time with my mum and I might go out for the odd game of golf with all the where everything was okay. You know, I'd get out. If I was in front of the lads, you would never know. You know, I'd go out and I'd be happy and I'd be joking and all that. And then I'd go home and shut the front door and then think about everything again. And then, you know, but then speaking to her, I, I knew that there was someone with me that I wasn't alone. I was kind of with her and my mum because sometimes it's difficult to speak to your mum, isn't it? When you've got mm. problems, you know, because your mum, they're always positive, aren't they? Where you know you go to a, a therapist and sometimes they don't tell you what you want to hear. You know, they say, "Well, maybe you need to think of it like this. Maybe you need to think of that person like that." And you know, maybe that person didn't mean it like this. So you know, you're always getting a different view or a different outlook. Your mum was very positive. Yeah, you're right. That person's this or that person's that, and they shouldn't have done this, and they shouldn't have done that, and like, you're, that's why I don't like that person. Or that's why it's like this. Where a therapist is very objective, and you know, they help you out in in so many different ways and, and outlooks. So you know, we gradually pieced it together. It was like a jigsaw. It was like putting it all back together, and then. I remember her saying one significant part was, right, we're buying a diary. We're buying a diary. We're not using phones. We're not using iPads. We're going to buy a diary. And we, we bought a diary and we had to fill it. We had to fill this diary with, with different things. And when I look back now, it was I was very much with other people or doing other things. So she was kind of in, she was kind of like getting me back into like a social lifestyle, back amongst people. And I, and I think, I think it's it's being away from that that insular place, that on your own when you've got time to think. It's very much you've got to get away from that. You've got to spend as much time, you know, in happy places, in good places, in positive environments. Yeah. And this is where I've I've got this great love for golf because I used to go and I'd say to her, Well, I haven't got a job on this day and you know, they're in work, they're playing football and she'd go Right. Well, we go and play golf now. We go. You go and play golf. You either go to drive range or you go. You go and play nine holes, and you go and focus on getting better at golf. So I, I'd find myself on the golf course, and this voice in my head would be thinking about the shot I'm going to play, how I'm going to play, the wind, the this, the that, the this, and it just wouldn't be. Oh, I've got this problem or that problem mm. or I'm not going to see him or that's not happening or yeah, I've got yeah. you know literally so, taking you out of yourself it, yeah you, you're just taken out of that environment and then and then the other thing is is you deal with is if you feel that you're getting back in that, that environment like for instance if I went home 
and I shut the front door and there's that emptiness in the house, then that voice clicks in again and it's kind of like starts telling you all these negative thoughts. Mm. You know, you gradually learn with her how to, you know, to process that. It's like, well, you know, yeah, it, you know, I'm on my own tonight and it's okay. I'm going to make myself some dinner and, you know, I'm going to watch something on the telly and then I'm going to get a good night's sleep and then, you know, I'm going to get up. You look forward to things. It's kind of got, I've got this coming up. I've got a little break away. You know, I've got my little boy at the weekend. You know, what are we going to do? I'm planning. So I'm always planning, but it's always positive. And they're the, the, the kind of trigger points that if if it does happen again, then you've got the tools to deal with it. I'm not saying that, you know, things haven't slipped. You know, I had a bad time with probably people a lot of people don't know about in the in the summer you know i moved house i moved out of a very comfortable environment into a new house into a new environment a new area and could not get my head around it it was like it was the worst thing possible and then like you know three or four weeks gone by and it was a very very difficult time difficult in the sense that you you couldn't get your head to a positive place yeah yeah, everything was negative and I didn't want to move and I didn't like the house and I wanted to move back to my house and I wanted to move back to my comfort area and, you know, but then you've got to like, you know, you're fighting with it all the time saying this is a new challenge. It's, you know, let's get our head around it. Let's do this. It's, you know, it's great. It's a different environment. You know, meeting different people and, you know, my friends are still there. They're still where they used to be and mm. drive back and, you know, you just need the, the positive triggers to, to help you get through them negative times. See, I think this is going to really resonate with an awful lot of fellas and girls listening to this because I know myself that I have my uh, warning signs is the mm-hmm. is the best term, I guess, for it, where, you know, you get in a thought spiral and it's hard to actually get above those clouds, mm-hmm. even though you know they're going to pass. I talked to Paul McGrath about this as well on the show and how, you know, you nearly actually need to have the plan of attack ready, uh, ready to go for when when it starts to happen. Do you did you talk to Paul or uh, any of the lads from that era about this? Uh, because, I mean, Paul was the first, I think, of certainly of the heroes of that time that we knew kind of openly had had come very close yeah Paul's I think everyone has a everyone who suffers with either depression anxiety stress you know I think it's all brought on by by different things it's such a vast subject isn't it so sensitive Mm. you know people might have problems with alcohol gambling death people just sometimes can't cannot get over the death of a close close person close friend close family member whatever it may be you know triggers are all different in in each other and i think it's all it's it's just a different process of how we individually go through it but i do think the biggest thing that helps is is talking to people and sharing the problem and hopefully that person I think the second step is vitally is, is so important. It's as important as the first step. Is if someone does come to you and has a problem, then you are there for them to listen and help them out. You know, you just don't take it on and, and forget about it. You know, I'm forever saying to people, "Are you okay? How are you?" You know, it's just. And if people say, "Oh, it's a bit tough," then ask them why it's a bit tough. You know, hopefully, you know, if they if they engage and then they let you know, then you might be able to have a little answer for them or or just to let them know that you're thinking about them mm. you know the amount of times that i've recently gone someone's gone how are you and i've gone how are you 
And like a fella said to me the other day, that's really nice that you said that. I'm like, yeah, yeah. People just don't say it. They don't expect don't, it, yeah. How are you? Like, and, you know, it's such an easy thing to say. And, you know, the world is changing. It's, it's you know, it's a fast world we're living in now with so many other problems, whether it's social media platforms, bullying now is more prevalent. You know, it's, it's just, it's always been there, but it seems to be getting worse, you know, for kids. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard world. That we, that we were brought up in, but we all face different problems that bring on different types of stress and anxiety and depression. It's just we need to catch it before you know it gets to that point where there is no turning back, and you know it's just you know it's just very very difficult, isn't it? And just to share them problems mm. to make that first step is so different. But the lads, you know, the more and more I, I speak to the lads, whether the, you know, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, it's more, I see so many of the lads who have, who have had problems and it's like, it's unbelievable. I would probably say 80% of the lads that I know have in somewhere from their life of finishing football to where they are now have faced either anxiety, distress or depression in one way or another. But it all seems to be about different things. Obviously, we can relate to some things, but you know, they all they're all differently. A lot of us walk around thinking we are awake to all of this. And for some of you listening to this, maybe this is the first time you've heard these conversations. And when Caroline Foran, the next voice you're going to hear, talks now about getting woke inverted commas to anxiety and understanding that it had become embedded in her in childhood. And I feel like there's a shift in especially in the corporate world where it was definitely seen up to a certain point as a badge of honor to work yourself into the ground and to work 70 mm. hour weeks and you know if you were if you you kind of brag about it you know if you weren't at the desk till 10 o'clock at night it was like are you working hard enough and then I think with the likes of um what's her name Ariana Huffington her book and everything people started to realize hang on you can be really successful and really um productive and still go home and have a life and prioritize your personal time and everything so I think it was just really important time-wise that people stopped seeing success in that way as, you know, driving yourself into the ground. I think people started to realize, actually, that is the most counterproductive thing you can do. And then to, to kind of just really, I guess, own it. Like So, like, people would think of anxiety as something that happened to someone else um, and wanted to appear to be this sort of bulletproof career person who can take on anything and handle it. And, you know, that's how we measured people's success. And I think for me, it's taken like a long time for me to accept that I can be a successful person while at the same time being a vulnerable person and having anxiety and being sensitive to those things. You know, I think for so long, I expected myself to be kind of made of stone to, to cope, especially in this industry. And I think opening up those lines of communication where people can say, actually, I can have a best selling book and still have panic attacks or, you know, I think mm -hmm. it makes people feel it's a lot more realistic when you say it there, I wonder that with all of the promo that you've done and uh, everything I've listened to you on either accidentally, just as it's come across my radar or in preparation for this conversation, I wonder, like, certainly for me, you opened my eyes, even though I thought I was someone who knew. I thought, I was, oh, well, I, yeah. I know what anxiety actually is. I, I fully respect uh, what it is and how 
people live with it and deal with it and what the approach to it is. But until I read your book, I really didn't. And I wonder how many times you've felt that kind of sense from people you were talking to. I am a woke person. And then mm-hmm. only over the course of the conversation, you realize, no, 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 you're not. And I've got to gently kind of ch- coax you out of that slumber. Yeah, I suppose um, I wasn't really too aware of that. I feel like where uh, something I wasn't expecting was that people who hadn't had anxiety at all found it very helpful to understand how to deal with someone. It may be like a, if, if their boyfriend or girlfriend or a family mm. member was going through it. I think that made them realize very much, wow, it's not just like a mood someone's in. It's not a state of mind that a cup of tea or a chat with your mom will cure. Um, so I think that was kind of a big eye opener for me in that people realized, took it kind of a little bit more seriously as something that was so heavily rooted in hormones and physiology and not just I just woke up in a mood today. Yeah, you know, because I can even feel it like I can actually feel it as we're having this conversation. And I'm sure that this is maybe something that you've kind of shaken off and freed yourself from over the course of the time that it's taken to deal with your own situation and write the book. But I can kind of feel the people that I know skeptics that are listening to mm. to me when I talk about mental health or when I talk to someone about it, that they're going, yeah, but I need a certain amount of anxiety to do the best work I can. Were you one yeah. of those people too? Definitely. I think for a long time I was trying to be obviously like an anxiety-free person and I was very wrong about that. I thought that to do well I had to have no fear and no anxiety and now I'm all about what I, it's, what I would call optimal anxiety. So a certain amount of anxiety that actually kind of drives me forward and helps me do better and makes me care about things and makes me double check things. And yes, it can be very detrimental at times. And it's kind of like the best and worst part of me. Mm-hmm. I just think and you were saying there about the mental health thing and, and people maybe not being aware of it. I think like something else has happened recently and I, I would hope to think I've contributed in some small way is that people don't think of mental health as something that they have to focus on only when they have a mental health problem. Mm. But like, as you know, we always ma- we all maintain our physical health, we all eat well, well, we try to and go to the gym or exercise. So like, you know, you have to have, you can't be sort of ignorant of it and think, oh, that would never happen to me because that's exactly when something creeps up on you like that. You know, when stress just turns into some bigger monster and you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that, you know, so I think it's very important for people to be like, we're all looking after our, our health in a, in a 360 way, physical, mental, everything. I don't want to summarize your experience, uh, but in the interest of time, I kind of have to kind of give people a, a kind of a frame of of what it is. Yeah. But essentially, you had pretty much the career that a lot of people who had studied communications at DCU were chasing. Mm-hmm. There were plenty of people that would have cut off their right arm to be <laughs> Caroline Foran, editor at entertainment.ie. That role you achieved there, you got there really fast. And I remember being uh, amazed how young you were when I met you and going, wow, like that's incredible that you can get to that point that quick. The drive and everything that it took to get there uh, must have been immense. You make the decision to walk away from it and go to 
Love in Dublin, which mm-hmm. is a new startup and an exciting new frontier and was breaking new stories and being talked about and had a lot of things go viral. And you're right in the middle of this kind of whirlwind of who knows what's next for this thing? How big is this thing going to get? And for loads of people, as I said, who were chasing what your career was at that time, this is where it's at. This is what it is. But for you at that point, that was the exact wrong place to Mm. be for the uh, internal health of you at that time. Can you maybe take us from there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I suppose I'm really only now coming around to accepting that, you know, everything happens for a reason. And, you know, we learn something from every experience. But at the time, I felt like I had made such a terrible mistake. I felt like... You know, I was putting myself under so much pressure to constantly be on to the next thing, achieving, okay, you've ticked that off, you've made it to editor, what's Mm. next, what's next? And I wasn't allowing myself the room to actually just sit in a role and enjoy it and enjoy the benefits of, you know, getting paid and feeling like I'm good at something. I just felt like I had to constantly be pushing and challenging and learning. And I, and while I think that's like admirable, sometimes you kind of need to give yourself a break as well. And I never had any respect for giving myself a break. Can I ask um, you, where do you think that came from? Like, that's that's something yeah. that I recognize in a lot of people I know who are high achievers. And I, I kind of sometimes wonder, where does that come from? And why, why, why are you chasing the whole time? And why are you not enjoying what's in front of you? I know. And like, to be honest, even having written two books around the subject at this point, I'm still kind of trying to figure it out. But I think a lot of it might come back to perfectionist thinking and always wanting to be the best that I can be. And once like so I'm always chasing success. Right. And once I get success, that becomes the norm. I'm like, well, now I don't see this as successful. I see Mm. the next thing as success. So it's this kind of cycle and it's very unhelpful. And I think maybe a, a lot of people would think, Jesus, did you have parents who really were breathing fire down your neck? And no, I didn't. I My parents have always been such, you know, so supportive and they n- never once had to tell me to go do my homework or work harder. I was just like that. And my brother was older than me and very, very smart. Like he's like, he's the mathematical person and I'm more creative. Mm. I would play musical instruments. He wouldn't. He's all physics and everything. And everything just came so naturally to him um, in terms of like academics. So I guess he probably paved the way for me that I wanted to reach the same level, but I had to work that bit harder because like, I'd have to study more. It didn't, it didn't come for me as easy as it would for him. So I guess like I had a model to follow and I wanted to I wanted the approval of my parents. I wanted the approval of my teachers. And I think like the drive and the determination is not, I think it's not always a case of just, wow, you're so driven. I think it's, it's coming from like a fear of failure. God, like, isn't it crazy that like raising our own little guy now, I, as I was reading the book before we came on air, it just kind of occurred to me that like, how do you do this? Like, how do you do this in such a way that like, there's your folks doing their level best by you? I know, it's and terrifying. as you say, you can't actually criticize them because they really didn't put you under that pressure that emanated from within you and, you know, yeah. what you wanted and, you know, realizing your brother's doing a great thing. It's kind of a lose lose in some ways because you're, you, you've kind of got to play the ball as it bounces with your kid do your parents obviously must feel some element of guilt in this because you'll (laughs) all automatically go oh my daughter had these pains in her stomach as a kid and i didn't 
none of us knew. I mean, we all knew kids that had pains in their stomach in school. Yeah. And it's certainly now I actually can remember one girl who had these stomach pains and it had to be something similar. Oh, yeah. But at the time, I think like I would never blame my parents because the awareness just wasn't there. And, um, you know, we were like I would have gone to doctors as a kid and even through secondary school where it's, you know, they're focusing on looking at your stomach, like literally the structure mm, of your stomach. Mm. And, and if nothing, if nothing shows up on a scan, well, there's nothing wrong with you. So it's how it's functioning and then how it's functioning. It, people just didn't connect that with emotional. It just the awareness just wasn't there. So like I would never blame anybody. And I know now for kids coming up now if you know if if your little boy is coming home saying I don't feel well you'll have the awareness to be like okay maybe is he a little bit nervous in school is there anything going on that you can kind of yeah dissect for him but it just wasn't there and I think that just kind of fed into it and I think like to go back to like childhood stuff like again like I had a really great normal upbringing there was no people expect Jesus you must have gone through something terrible to have mm. made you be like an anxious person and I didn't like I just think some people have a tendency towards it and, and some people don't. And I think maybe I would have, my my parents both worked full time and, you know, what we were kind of passed around from minder to minder. And this is not like, oh my God, poor me. Like, yeah, it was great. Yeah, great I holidays. Think, <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a like, result of all the hard work. <laughs> I know. So like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't blame anything. I think it's just, it can just happen. And I think I was just like a nervous kid and I wanted um, my my grandparents died in quite quick succession of each other, and there was one experience that I think maybe lodged a little bit of fear in me. And I, it's funny now, but I, my granddad died, and I must have been about seven or something. And my parents and my and they brought me to the the morgue to see him to say goodbye, right? And I was like, okay, I had never seen a dead body before, and this oh is my, my granddad who yeah. was like, you know, my hero. Sure. And when I went in to see him, the coffin had broken his nose, the oh lid, so his God. face. <laughs> His face was like squashed and I'm laughing about it now, but I was traumatized. Yeah. And I just like those little experiences that, you know, you could rationalize as an adult, but for a kid, they're like, they don't have logic and reason at that age, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. So an experience, a fearful experience as a kid will set into your mind and lodge there and it will throw up again for you later in life. So while I can now say, oh, look, I, that would make sense. And, you know, or if I was afraid because grandparents were dying, you know, like, at, you have to appreciate it from the kid's perspective and how those little experiences can sort of set a chain of a chain in motion, which, again, I mean, it makes me terrified of being a parent that mm. you're watching out for these things all of the time. Like, I'm terrified. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, we all have those those memories that stick out. It's nearly something that you kind of, again, you have to own as well, that, that these are the these are the risks of being a parent and part of being a conscientious parent is being aware of the impact of even these small things on a kid and having yeah. communication lines open where the kid yeah, can go that actually I don't like the idea that my granddad was stuffed into that box. Yeah and to just take them seriously and come down to their level and talk to them at their level and appreciate that you know that's how they're seeing the world so I think I suppose that's what I've learned is you know when I am a parent if I'm lucky enough to become a parent that for your kid it's as real as it feels to them and mm -hmm. to just help them kind of get through their if they have a scary day or they what they get a fright or you know like I even remember being like go upstairs and I brush your teeth and go to bed and I was like oh my god terrified 
you know, but always afraid to say it. And, you know, your parents would just be like, I get over it, like, just go on, you're fine, you know. But, yeah. like, you believe, well, what if there's a monster up there, mm. you know? So and while you don't want to mollycoddle the children too much, and I obviously can't speak from experience not being a parent, I think there's probably room now for parents to be like, okay, well, the kid is obviously scared, so let's try and tease it out and make them feel a little bit better so that it doesn't kind of lodge and build and add to anxiety later in life. But at the same time, there's not a lot you can do about it, and that's just life. And at this, like, while I can appreciate, okay, there maybe was a few experiences as a kid that made me maybe set in, in, uh, in stone like a, a nervous disposition, I can still make it work for me now. It's not like you're just, you're just yeah, like yeah. fucked forever. Like, yeah. you know? The next voice you're going to hear is Richie Sadlier, someone who I immensely respect and uh, I just can't get over what he and Caroline specifically have done in the last few years in terms of opening up about their lives. These are difficult conversations, but the point of these conversations is to let you know that you're not on your own and that you never are. And whatever you're going through, someone else has been there before you and knows how to get out the other side. This is uh, Richie talking about almost not getting out the other side. So little of what I do now is something that I could have imagined or predicted a decade ago. I, I, I started to study, I mean, this is in no particular order of the things I do. I mean, I, I started to study psychotherapy in about 2010 because I got a lot of help from psychotherapy years earlier and I figured, I'll give this a shot. I, I'm really interested in this process. I got loads out of it myself, and I reckon being in the other chair must be a, a hell of an experience when people get from the process what they want. Whatever that is, they change, they heal, they grow, they recover, they, they learn, whatever it is, it must be brilliant to go through that with somebody. So I started that in 2010, and, and I was right to follow the hunch that I thought I would like it because I loved it. I really loved it. even the the bits that I didn't think I'd like, like the stuff that learning in in college where you have to do the exams or do presentations um, just everything about it. I was, I was fascinated by it. And then when I actually got in the room and started actually being a therapist, which is really difficult to describe what that's like. Mm. A lot of people listening to this might have experience of being a client of therapy. And I'm sure some people know what it's like to be a therapist. But yeah, but there's just so. Some, there's something about it that, that that I was really drawn to. And now over the last few years, I, I'll tell you why it happened. I, I, I was asked in 2012, during the Euros, I remember, to go into St. Pat's Youth Prison to do a coaching session of football with the prisoners there. They, they, they're, they're lads between 17 and 21. And I said, <laughs> you know what, I'll go in and give it a go. I, I, I go in. And I really enjoyed it. And the lads really liked it. And then there was this big long waiting list of a lot of the other lads who were in the prison who also wanted to do it. And I thought, well, I'll keep coming back. So I basically went every week, more or less every week for a year and a half. And I just remember there was something, there was something I felt just working with young lads, with teenagers, with that, with adolescents. I don't, I don't, I don't know what it was, but I thought I, I'm getting something from this. There's a buzz I get mm -hmm. from this. So then I started to move my therapy practice into more of an adolescent focus. So then I went back to college and doing a master's in adolescent psychotherapy and whatever I got from working with adults one-on-one, -on -one, working with teenagers and their parents in a room, yeah, I love it. 
I wish I had a better answer. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I, would, no, I wish I had something. Describe the things you love. Yeah, I wish I had something it. more clever or, or, or specific or, or some beautiful phrase to but someone. It's a unique love. feeling. Yeah. Do you know, like, I, I, I had it playing football. I, I had it on the good days where you're. It could be in a training session, it could be in a match, it could be standing in the tunnel, standing in the tunnel at Millwall Stadium before you go out and you, 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 you've ten lads alongside you. And over to the left-hand side, there's 11 of them. And those little moments where you just catch eye, you make eye contact with the bloke that you know you're going to be marking on all the free kicks because you've been told in the dressing room. And you've this little mental thing that says, OK, it's me and him for the next hour and a half. And the 10 lads that are with you, you know because of the, who the 10 are that you know they're with you. Um, and particularly in a place like Millwall where you know at a moment's notice the crowd can turn against you. So those 10 lads matter. Like those moments, I sit and think, I love this. Like this is amazing, I love this. And when I finished, one of the most difficult things about finishing was, was loads of different things. I'm 24, poor me, all the things I didn't achieve. And, and like most people, when when they lose something, they, they, they focus on the thing that's been lost. And I wasn't really focusing on any of the possibilities or the opportunities that might open up. But I remember thinking at the time, I'm never going to love anything I do again. In, in, in terms of getting really ful- fulfilled out of the things I do, I, I was a one-trick pony. Football was it. And now football's gone. And I genuinely believe that. I remember sitting there going, like, the, the, it's going to be just vanilla from here on in. And I thought, well, this is shit. And I had to kind of just, I, I, I got to this weird place of just accepting this. I may as well just say yes to all the things I'm offered because I'm going to have to do something. I'm not going to love any of them, so I can't really be that picky. So I remember like the Sunny Independent got on to me and said, will you, will you write some pieces? And I said, I will. And we did it for like an agreement to do it for three weeks. And then after a couple of weeks, I said, let's do it for six weeks. And after about four weeks, I said, let's do it till the summer. And then I just did it. Ended up doing it for nine and a half years. But that's really the passageway out of this, right? Am I right in saying that that's heading towards the light? If even for a small period, Richie, can you tell us about the dark because that period where you're like I, this is it I'm done I'll tell you if you want to know the really that like I, I lived in a house with a, a swimming pool in the backyard and I'd seen I'd seen a film I can't think of the name of the film but there was a character in it and I think it was a homeless person and I think he attempted suicide by filling his coat with rocks and jumping into a pool and I remember thinking that's the way I'm going to go and I contacted a solicitor and I, I wrote up a will because I had a load of payments coming. Like I'd never been wealthier in my life than I was the moment I retired. I had an insurance payment, career-ending insurance uh, payment. Millwall gave me a lump sum of six months of the remainder of my contract. I cashed in uh, my pension plan with the PFA. It, I think when you retire early because of an injury, I think it's the only scenario where you can cash in your, your pension. So I did that. So I had a shitload of money. And I was miserable, heartbroken. And I was going, I'm going to always feel like this. This is going to, like, because the thing that's caused this can't be undone. So the feeling I have from it will always remain. You know, it's quite a simple little mm-hmm. formula you do in your head. That was my perspective at the time. So that's how dark it got. 
What was the injury specifically? It was like? my hip, my right hip, and it was a. What is it? To, what was torn in there? What my labrum. Yeah. So it's like the the cartilage. I know. I had the yeah. exact same injury. All oh, right. Yeah. No. So it was that. So so. And I, it actually makes it impossible to run or turn or change direction. Is the big thing, yeah. right? Oh, like rotating my hip inwards. I I just can't do. Yeah. And and I actually did it three weeks after I got my first cap at the Irish team. Which I remember for years, I used to think, well, that's the worst possible timing. I just played for Ireland and then it happens and then mm. I didn't recover and then I finished. And now I think it's the, it, it was perfectly timed in that. I, I, at least I, I got to do the, that. Yeah, or the yeah. cap was perfectly timed. It just at the last possible mm. international that was played while I was an active professional footballer. You got in. I got to play. I got my 12, 15 minutes, whatever it was. But that's the perspective I have now. And finally, we have Blind Boy, someone who a few years ago at Electric Picnic asked me, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. That's my best Blind Boy <laughs> impression. I'm thinking about starting a podcast, bye. And uh, I was like, I think that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> I didn't know that it was going to grow to be this absolute beast of a show that it has in its own right shone a light on mental health in ways that this conversation that you're about to hear with him kind of foreshadowed. Here he is talking about his own mental health difficulties. Emotional intelligence is the ability to, it's it's the learned ability, right? It is the learned ability to understand your own emotions and to correctly label and feel your own emotions. And as a result of that learning, to then be able to do the same for other people through empathy. Okay? And right. I think that this is something that should be taught to kids from the age of three. Very, very simple things, such as when a three-year-old kid or a four-year-old kid, they're in play school, and some other kid comes in with a Tonka truck, and that child then goes over and kicks the other child's Tonka truck, Right? That is an emotionally unintelligent reaction because the child has felt jealousy. Their brain has sublimated that into anger and they express it as anger. What should be explained to that child is, you know, you went over there and kicked the other person's Tonka truck because he had it. It's like, no, 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 no. What happened there is you felt envy. You felt envy at this other person's possession that doesn't necessarily mean that you should express that as anger. How about instead being happy for the fact that they have a Tonka truck? And that that's you might get a go of it in the future. Yeah, that's emotional intelligence. But that kid could grow up to be a man at 36, 37 years of age who has the same envy for his neighbour's BMW and ends up, instead of lashing, you know, he's too old at that point to go to the neighbour's BMW with a hammer. So what he does is he turns the anger back in towards himself and starts to look at his own self-worth and go, I'm a piece of shit, I can't afford a BMW, everything's gone wrong. And then you have the roots of depression. So, Would you be willing to tell us what emotions you were failing to recognise when you found yourself in a need for an emotional intelligence class? I kind of taught myself emotional intelligence through mindfulness and, and a book called Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman, which is a fantastic book. I had the, I was in the throes of anxiety and depression. And when you get to that level of extremity in, in, in your own mental health, that level of badness, you can't really feel anything. Emotions are frightening alien things. And I was unable to label any emotion whatsoever. 
all emotions were terrifying to me and it was a horrible place to be but what was I scared I'll tell you what I was scared of I would, it, it's, it's, it happened when I was about 19, 20 this anxiety and this depression what I was afraid of was it, it was low self-esteem I had, I had a very very low sense of self-worth and I did not believe that I was capable of being an autonomous adult I didn't believe that I was capable of standing on my own two feet of earning a living of feeding myself of separating from the comfort of being with my parents and then standing out on my own to completely support myself the idea of that utterly terrified me because I had very bad asthma when I was growing up as a child very very bad asthma so I was raised to believe that if I did the same things that other kids were doing that I might die do you know what I'm saying when mm. I was 3-4 years of age if the lads were playing soccer in the field if I wanted to go and play soccer too my parents who were only trying their best would, have say, would say to me no 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 no, don't go out and play soccer with them no 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 you'll get an asthma attack you might die and this continually when you learn things at a young age you internalise them so that you don't they become autonomous reactions and you don't realise them when you're older mm. so I didn't realise that it was those messages I was being taught at 3 and 4 about being normal that then as an adult it meant that act, you know going out and being normal and standing on my own two feet filled me with intense intense anxiety sure. so I found cognitive behavioural therapy and what cognitive behavioural therapy does is it teaches you to to view your life as if you were a scientist so when fears came up in me and negative thoughts and anxious thoughts came up in my mind I'd write them down on a piece of paper and then I would challenge them against the evidence of reality. So something such as a thought like, I'm worthless, I'm useless, I can never, I, I'll never be able to go out and rent an apartment and feed myself. I'd write that down on a piece of paper and then list out the actual evidence that suggests that this is fact. And there is no evidence because it's an irrational thought. And through doing that continually over months and months and months, it's carving a new path. It's like... Imagine there's a shop down the road from your house, right? And between your house and the shop is a field, okay? So you go to the shop every single night and there's a path that's already carved out that other people are using. So you, a little furrow in the grass, you know? Mm -hmm. So you naturally, without even thinking, you walk down that furrow to the shop autonomously, without thinking. But on the way of this furrow, you might get mugged a couple of times or you might get bitten by a rat, but yet you still keep doing it because that's the path that's been carved out. What CBT does is it causes you to appreciate this path results only in pain for you. It might be the wrong path. Let's start a new one. So you would go back to the field and you'd carve out a new furrow. You'd start walking over grass that hasn't been walked on before. It's very difficult at the start. The grass is getting all over your chest. It's up too high. Your feet are getting wet. It's not pleasant. But eventually the other path grows over and this new path becomes the one that you choose. That's what CBT is. But instead of a path, it's your way of thinking. You challenge and test your thinking against reality until that eventually becomes your autonomous reaction. And that's where I'm at now. And that's why I don't have mental health issues anymore for 10 well, years. You know, I feel like when you're on there talking about challenging the path that the country's on and the way access to mental health in the country is is actually uh, mental health services just is so difficult for anyone to access it. Absolutely. 
that there is a there is a new path and that they're that we're responsible for kind of forcing the country down it i've big fears about it i yeah. wondered what your what's your biggest fear for ireland moving forward that if the government addresses the mental health issue, which it's going to be forced to do, because the thing is, we're in a situation of crisis, so the government must be reactive about that. They must use money to try and fix it. My fear is that the neoliberal nature of all modern governments means that they will try and fix it through the path of least resistance, which is probably a very medicalised model. Pills. Pills, yeah. And... There's, I'm not giving out about drugs for mental health. People, anti-anxiety, anti-depression, these work for certain people. However, it doesn't work for everybody. It, like I know people who go to doctors because they broke up with their girlfriend and they're handed antidepressants. The fact of the matter is, is that decent psychotherapy is very expensive. A box of antidepressants is about €8. Euro. Ten sessions of psychotherapy could be a couple of grand to the government. And my fear is that they will address the mental health issue by trying to save as much money as possible and simply end up with uh, a population who have easy access to antidepressants and anti-anxiety tablets. And that would be a very short-term band-aid and it doesn't address the issues. What I would like to see the government do, invest heavily in free and quick access to psychotherapy, multidisciplinary teams for psychiatric stuff too, and drugs, all three. And I'd also like to see them have a proactive solution, invest in a proactive solution so that mental health education, basic stuff, is taught in school from the very earliest age, the way that religion is taught from the age of three, that you replace religion with emotional intelligence, cognitive behavioural therapy, transaction analysis, all these beautiful tools that exist within psychology, start teaching them to three-year-old kids so that when those three-year-olds end up at 18, 19 you've eliminated the issue of mental health issues. So you're only left with the a small amount of people who end up falling afoul of their own mental health, but the general population are kind of okay. And if you look at it then, if you do want to go at that from a neoliberal model, that investment will result in a population in 20, 30 years' time that are far more productive, that have f- much more self-esteem and self-belief to become entrepreneurs to realise their goals and ultimately benefit the economy so I think that's a no-brainer You moved over here to where I am and then you moved back I mean you yeah. must have you must have moved back with a certain amount of hope or a belief that you know what this is the place for me oh. Yeah I missed Limerick I missed Limerick I, I absolutely adore Limerick with all my heart it's it's my home it's my home what can I say you know other people come to Limerick and they go what's the fuss and I just go look it's my home I love it what would you say to someone who's wrestling with that very thought they've made the leap they're in the place where probably professionally this is the right place like London has a lot more opportunities for you than Limerick I know yeah that's a very tough one that is very very tough they and miss many, home. many of my friends many of my friends are in particularly the ones in Canada. The ones in Canada are in very good jobs, excellent careers, incredibly happy with the society, pensions, incredibly high standard of life for now and the foreseeable future. And they miss home and they know that coming back to this country, even something as simple as the tax on your car or the insurance Mm -hmm. on your car, so much of it is just a barrier to coming back. The ones that are coming back are... 
the lads who are labouring in Australia who haven't got much over there either. They're the ones who are kind of wanting to come back and what's keeping them there is the weather. But I don't know what to say. I mean, if your homesickness is genuinely affecting your happiness and mental health to the point that your life is not enjoyable despite your standard of living, get the fuck back home and be okay with taking a lesser job. But if your mental health is okay and you've got a good future and all of that, I don't know, maybe look at a situation where you can take a two-month holiday back to Ireland. You said that after Horse Outside, you kind of gave up on the idea of paying your bills with this thing. Yeah. Well, what did you mean by that? And where are you right now with that? Because I'd um, like to think that Blind Boy Boat Club has a decent enough standard of living. I I can earn a living and I'm happy with that and I'm very grateful to that. But I live in Limerick. You know, for my career, I should be living in Dublin. I can't afford to live in Dublin. I still don't have a house. I'm still trying to get a mortgage, you know. But I'm not complaining. Jesus, look, I can I can pay my way. I don't have worries with money. Uh, I also, I don't have many demands. Do you know what I mean? All I want is to be able to go to Dunn's and to be able to eat chicken breast because I want to not I, I never want to be in the situation again where it's like <laughs> I want to eat I have to, I have to eat chicken thighs because I can't afford chicken breast I don't want that I want to be able to go to the shop and, and, and not compromise yeah I, I don't you know I, I want to actually be able to get the things that I want but what I do want isn't you know I cycle a bicycle because I have no interest in a car like I like cycling if I'm earning enough to keep me happy and the work that I'm doing is creatively rewarding then I'm good I'm good with that I could take the bag off I could take the fucking bag off rock on up to RTE and I'm sure they'd give me a job as a presenter and I'd be grand but I don't know but I'd be happy and the most important thing to me is my mental health So there you have it that's our very special World Mental Health Day bonus episode of an Irishman abroad presented to you in conjunction with our chosen charity partner jigsaw.ie my thanks to Bob Geldof Jason McAteer Caroline Foran Richie Sadler Blind Boy and Jen Trechik for their contributions to this episode it just wouldn't be here without any of those people and Jigsaw's immense work in this area deserves your help and your attention head over there to jigsaw.ie forward slash donate and kick in what you can stop yourself from buying that jacket or bag or shoes that you're thinking about treating yourself to in this lockdown and kick it in there and i guarantee you'll feel a lot better also if you're having difficulty with a young person in your life or if you yourself are a young person who needs some help Go over to jigsaw.e now and see their information. It's updated all the time. They have a phone line and webinars that may help you right away. Uh, I know that from talking to Jen, they're just so committed and so brilliant at what they do over there. And them being the chosen charity partner, this show is so perfect for what we do here and what Irishman Abroad has always been about. And it seems kind of perfect that we cross the 400 episode mark with this episode. I want to give a very big shout out to some friends of the show now who have helped me immensely across that 400 episodes. Deck Ryan, first and foremost, a real true friend to the show. Great person with a big heart who I'm massively indebted to. To Tina, 
I, I just couldn't tell you how many times she's been the reason this show has continued. I can't put into words what she means to me. And to be hitting 400 on our 11th wedding anniversary is truly special to Mikey, who uh, has contributed in his own way each and every week. I do it all for you, pal. Massive thanks to John Marr for his bonus research in the past while. The show is about the guests, and I think that at its core is my curiosity for other people. And I guess the understanding that none of us are that different and coming to that realisation across the 400 episodes has been gradual and sudden at times. Maybe this episode helped you. Maybe there are others that will help you. We set up the Patreon page when Currency Fair, our longtime sponsor, buzzed off understandably in the middle of a pandemic and this, the very very start of the pandemic they had to pull the plug and I'm immensely grateful to the support they gave me for the years they did but you guys rolled in when we turned to Patreon and we said we're going to crowdfund this podcast you guys r- rolled in I mean it's not we're far from a wealthy podcast at this point but I I, I faith that more of you will find us and come on over there and with whatever spare fiver you might find in your budget each month support the show and allow us to continue and expand to what we are now which is a show that is three episodes a week hopefully moving to four with contributors as brilliant as Marion McKeown Sonia O'Sullivan and of course all the contributors who took part in Men Behaving Better Irishman Inside Basketball and Irishman Behind Bars, our spin-off series. None of this, none of this happens without you listeners, the people that support this show, who have to a large extent been my therapist at times and the support that I needed in my difficult periods. I'm massively indebted to all of you and, of course, Brian Connolly, who has produced this show from day one the first person I rang when this thing came into my hands and I realised I don't know what to do I don't know how to do this I mean there is a massive metaphor for mental health in the creation of Irishman Abroad because that moment sitting on my bed I could have blown it I could have blown the whole thing but instead I stopped, took a breath, and reached out to one person I thought might know (laughs) what to do in this situation. That situation I had was I had an audio file, (laughs) not a fucking notion how to edit it. And I remembered Brian Connolly was doing his PhD in sound (laughs) at Maynooth, and this thing together he and I have built and it has seen us through more tough times than I ever thought possible so a massive thanks to you Brian and again to Tina who pushes this thing forward and believes all the time I'm gonna wrap up there before I (laughs) 
before I crack completely. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I'll probably do that off somewhere else now. But Lord, this has been a special episode. I hope that it helps you wherever you're listening to it. Thank you for all the lovely messages. Thank you for always supporting the show. And I will see you tomorrow for the Donny O'Sullivan main show episode of An Irishman Abroad. <laughs>